Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Morning shot. Good morning and thanks for staying with me, Lin Lee, on Money FM 89.3. Last week was a big week for climate change. World leaders gathered for two high-level climate meetings. At the start of the week was the Copenhagen Climate Ministerial in Denmark. Climate ministers and decision makers from some 40 countries kicked off discussions ahead of uh, COP28 climate talks. Issues discussed include whether to call for a phase-out of fossil fuels when governments gather in Dubai for that meeting later this year. And soon after the Copenhagen meeting, the first UN Water Conference in 46 years took place in New York, where nearly 700 groups, including state and local governments, non-profit groups and companies met. To help us put all of that in perspective, we're joined by adjunct professor Jin Palutikov, founding director of the National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility at Griffith University in Australia. Good morning, Professor Good morning. Okay, we're just months away from COP28, which will take place in late November. The climate talks will mark a significant milestone as it is seen as the culmination of the first global stock take of the 2015 Paris Agreement. The stock take will analyse the progress made on the world's efforts to slash greenhouse gas emissions enough to limit global temperature rise to below 2 degrees Celsius. What is your assessment of the efforts so far? Well, the process towards the global stock take has three components. The, the first is the gathering of the information. The second is a technical appraisal of that um, information on uh, limitation of greenhouse gas emissions. And then finally, when they come together, the governments at the COP in uh, November, uh, the final phase is to make a political assessment and to develop policy for the way forward. So at the moment, um, governments should be deep in the technical appraisal of the information that they've gathered on the uh, progress that they're making towards reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but also uh, around adaptation to the uh, unavoidable impacts of climate change and an evaluation of the financing that's available to support mitigation and adaptation um, of climate to climate change. So there's a lot of work being done and it hopefully will all come together um, in the UAE in November at the COP and I think everybody will be watching very carefully because in a way this is the first time that the governments are being held to account that there will actually be evidence to evaluate the uh, extent to which governments are managing to meet Mm -hmm. the commitments that they've made to reduce greenhouse gases and adapt to climate change. So it's going to be a very fascinating November for people like Mm -hmm. me. You touched on uh, climate financing earlier. Just to quickly talk about the talks in Copenhagen last week, there was a push for the World Bank to play a greater role in combating climate change in terms of financing green initiatives. What are your thoughts on that? It's a very difficult time, I think, for financing for climate change because there are so many other global issues at the present time. We only have to look at uh, what's happening in Ukraine, mm-hmm. but also it's the impact of climate change that are beginning to be felt now and that are actually beginning to cost governments money, uh, both nationally and internationally. So, for example, you might look at the drought in Somalia, where um, many, many thousands of people now are in a very dire situation and aid is required immediately to to assist those people. Mm-hmm. 
there are so many challenges at the present time that you have to wonder how much money is going to be available for financing climate change in the long term. I think the World Bank has an important role to play, but it's a very hard-headed organisation. Uh, it calls uh, governments who receive uh, money to account for uh, their action. It expects them to behave in a, in a particular way. And I guess it also expects the money in, eventually to be paid back so that, uh, you know, it's it's not a gift, it's a loan. So governments then end up with increasing amounts of debt. We are speaking to adjunct Professor Jin Politikov at Griffith University. Professor, just as leaders were meeting to discuss ways to achieve net zero targets in Denmark last week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change launched its latest report. And it says when it comes to keeping to the target of limiting the global average temperature to below 1.5 degrees Celsius, we are running out of time. And that it's likely that warming will exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius between 2030 and 2035. Five. Realistically, what's happening here? Do you think we can make this target? And how should we be looking at this 1.5 degrees Celsius benchmark? So we're already at 1.1. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a lot of headroom left. There's only uh, 0.4 degrees Celsius mm-hmm. to go before we reach that threshold of 1.5. So the IPCC is absolutely right. We're almost there and it's beginning to increasingly look as though we cannot avoid it. People are increasingly beginning to talk about the potential to come back from, so we may exceed 1.5, but it may be possible over time to reduce global temperatures so that we have what's called an overshoot scenario. Mm -hmm. We actually uh, pass 1.5 degrees, but over time, uh, towards the end of this century and maybe at the beginning of the uh, 22nd century, we uh, are able to reduce uh, temperatures because we actually start to withdraw carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So increasingly scientists are beginning to look at that scenario mm-hmm. because it looks as though we're not going to be able to avoid 1.5. Okay, the IPCC also highlighted that to achieve uh, the, the transition, we need transition from fossil fuels without carbon capture and storage to very low or zero carbon energy sources such as renewables or fossil fuels with CCS, demand-side measures, and improving efficiency. So some climate activists have voiced their concern that the UAE, which receives half of its revenue from fossil fuels, will try to stop governments from getting a fossil fuel phase-out into the COP28 agreement. So what can we do to help countries that depend heavily on fossil fuels reduce their reliance? I guess it comes down to technology transfer is, is one of the principal ways in which we can support governments to reduce their fossil fuel dependence. I mean, there are two kinds of governments, aren't there? There mm-hmm. are nations which rely on the extraction and sales of fossil fuels to support their economy. And on the other hand, there are countries that depend on fossil fuels to support their industries. And, mm-hmm. and the second category, I think, is easy to deal with because you can support those countries to transition to renewable energy through technology transfer and through um, soft loans and so forth. Much more difficult perhaps to support those countries who depend on the extraction and sales of fossil fuels. 
um, how you support those countries, well, in a way, they are already, most of them, pretty rich because they have uh, been able to, for many years, sell oil and coal um, on the global market and to make a lot of money from that. And a lot of them have developed sovereign, you know, they have cash reserves Mm -hmm. that they have developed through those sales over the years and, and hopefully they can deploy those in order to support their economy. They have to diversify, there's, there's no doubt about it, and most of them are thinking very carefully about how they're going to de- diversify their economy because sales of fossil fuels on the global markets are going to reduce as all governments globally try to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. I think uh, primarily it's down to them to find alternative economic bases for moving forward into the future. And finding alternatives, reducing reliance on fossil fuels, even if we see it successfully included in the COP28 agreement, what kind of roadblocks will we see in terms of execution? Every government in the world struggles with the... It doesn't matter whether they're developed or whether they're developing. They're all struggling with this transition to renewable energies because it requires such a fundamental change in how energy is created and in how it is distributed. And and very often it's the distribution of that energy that causes the greatest difficulty for governments because they've built over time a a huge grid system to deploy energy and electricity and it's no longer fit for purpose uh, when you rely primarily on distributed renewable energy resources rather than centralised fossil fuel-based energy generation. So there have to be these very fundamental changes and of course it's going to cost a lot of money and of course there's going to be a lot of resistance to change. There's always resistance to change Mm -hmm. and there are uh, many vested interests uh, that will fight the uh, shift that we all have to make. How you overcome those vested interests, well it just requires very uh, concentrated and devoted effort by governments to make that change. And I don't think that they have any alternative Mm -hmm. to uh, making the change. It's just how they address Mm -hmm. those vested interests and how they uh, release the resources in order to uh, make the changes and how far-sighted they are in planning for the future, whether they make short-term changes or long-term changes. So I guess the bottom line is there has to be this change. This has, there has to be this shift over towards renewable resources. It's just how willing governments are to make the change, how far-sighted they are, and how efficient and successful they are to fighting um, mm-hmm. all those um, interests that will try to prevent change occurring. Okay. Professor, turning our attention to the UN Water Conference. Now, that conference is actually the first in almost five decades, and the UN highlighted the imminent risk of a global water crisis as a result of our vampiric consumption. How should regulations be changed to help developing nations in particular that are facing the pressing issue of water scarcity and sanitation? 
I don't know. It's regulations that have to change. It's um, it's fundamentally an engineering problem. Mm. Uh, getting water, water is a sort of local issue. You, you can't deploy water over very long distances. It, it's really the problem with water is it's really heavy, and mm-hmm. so it's really difficult to move, and it's very expensive to move. So the problems with water are generally local to regional rather than national to international. Uh, in some cases, they are uh, international. But generally speaking, they're, they're more localised and they're engineering problems. And mm. it's uh, developing the infrastructure for deploying water at a regional scale and ensuring that that water is clean. It seems to me that it's a fundamental principle of good government that you are able to supply your population with a clean water supply. And it's very often something that governments seem to fail at. So it seems to me that it's pretty much, rather than a regulatory problem, it's more an engineering problem and it's more a case of governments being willing to deploy resources towards those engineering solutions. It's very often a problem of, for Mm. example, simply a matter of making sure that you have no leakages in your system. If you have no leakages in your system, in many, many cases, there would be a sufficiency of water. That doesn't apply, of course, where you have uh, international issues around water, where you have very large river basins, like, for example, the Nile, where there have to be international agreements about how that water is going to be um, used for uh, across five, six, seven different nations. And that is a very, very different issue where you have to have international agreements. You do have to some, have some kind of regulatory system. And, and generally speaking, the uh, infrastructure uh, for um, uh, creating and implementing those regulations does exist, although it comes under tremendous pressure uh, because there often is uh, an insufficiency of water in the system, for example, in the Nile, to ensure that everybody along the, the line of the line of the Nile has enough water. And how you manage that is a whole different ball game. Uh, I live in Australia. Mm-hmm. Even in Australia, there, there are huge interstate conflicts over the, the use of the water in the Murray Darling River system. Um, how much greater are, are the uh, potential conflicts that can arise where it's an international problem such that you would have, for example, with the Nile River. And there has to be a constant dialogue between governments to ensure that conflict does not arise because it would be very easy for that to happen going Mm. forward as populations increase, as demand for water increases, as uh, development occurs, you you can see that there is a huge potential for things to go wrong. Okay, Professor, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you very much for speaking with us. We've been speaking with adjunct professor Jim Palutikov, founding director of the National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility at Griffith University. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.